Hello and welcome to this podcast episode on addressing the wealth gap for Hispanic families. In this episode, we will be discussing the current state of wealth inequality in the United States and the challenges faced by communities of color, particularly Hispanic families. First, let's define what we mean by the wealth gap. The wealth gap refers to the unequal distribution of wealth among different groups of people. In the United States, there is a significant wealth gap along racial and ethnic lines, with white families having significantly more wealth than Hispanic and black families. According to a report cited in the PDF, the average Hispanic family has six times less wealth than a typical white family. This is a significant problem that has far-reaching consequences for individuals, families, and the economy as a whole. So, why does this wealth gap exist? There are many factors that contribute to the wealth gap, including disparities in education, employment, and access to financial resources. For example, Hispanic families are less likely to have access to high-quality education and job opportunities, which can limit their earning potential and ability to accumulate wealth. Additionally, Hispanic families are more likely to face discrimination and systemic barriers that make it harder for them to achieve economic success. The consequences of the wealth gap are significant. Families with less wealth have fewer resources to invest in their future, such as education, healthcare, and homeownership. This can lead to a cycle of poverty that is difficult to break. Additionally, the wealth gap has broader economic consequences as it limits the potential for economic growth and stability. So, what can be done to address the wealth gap for Hispanic families? There are many proposed solutions, including policies that promote access to education, employment, and financial resources. For example, raising the minimum wage and expanding access to refundable tax credits can provide much-needed support to low-income families. Additionally, Policies that promote access to affordable housing and health care can help families build wealth over time. However, addressing the wealth gap is not a simple fix. It requires a comprehensive approach that addresses the root causes of inequality and promotes economic opportunity for all. This includes addressing systemic barriers and biases that limit the potential for success for communities of color. In conclusion, the wealth gap is a significant problem that has far-reaching consequences for individuals, families, and the economy as a whole. Addressing the wealth gap requires a comprehensive approach that promotes economic opportunity for all and addresses the root causes of inequality. By working together to address this issue, we can create a more equitable and prosperous future for all Americans. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode on addressing the wealth gap for Hispanic families. We hope that this episode has provided valuable insights into the current state of wealth inequality and the challenges faced by communities of color. Remember, addressing the wealth gap requires a comprehensive approach that promotes economic opportunity for all and addresses the root causes of inequality. By working together to address this issue, we can create a more equitable and prosperous future for all Americans.
Hello and welcome to our podcast on the topic of racial and ethnic wealth gaps in higher education. Today we will be discussing the findings of a recent study conducted by William R. Emmons and Lowell R. Ricketts, which sheds light on the factors that contribute to these gaps and the potential remedies for addressing them. To begin, it is important to understand what we mean by racial and ethnic wealth gaps. These gaps refer to the disparities in wealth accumulation and financial security that exist between different racial and ethnic groups in the United States. While there are many factors that contribute to these gaps, one of the most significant is higher education. Many people believe that a college education is the key to upward mobility and financial success. However, as Emmons and Ricketts' study shows, this is not always the case. In fact, the authors found that even when controlling for factors such as education, family structure, and luck, there are still significant wealth gaps between different racial and ethnic groups. So, what are the main factors that contribute to these gaps? According to Emmons and Ricketts, financial decision-making and family structure are two of the most important. For example, they found that Black and Hispanic families are more likely to have lower levels of financial literacy and to make riskier financial decisions than white families. Additionally, they found that family structure plays a significant role in wealth accumulation, with single-parent households and households with fewer children having lower levels of wealth. While these factors are certainly important, it is also important to recognize that there are many other factors that contribute to racial and ethnic wealth gaps. These include historical and systemic factors such as discrimination, redlining, and unequal access to credit and financial services. So, what can be done to address these gaps and promote greater equity in higher education? Emmons and Ricketts suggest a number of potential remedies, including increasing financial literacy and education, promoting greater access to credit and financial services, and addressing systemic issues such as discrimination and redlining. However, it is important to recognize that there is no one-size-fits-all solution to these complex issues. Instead, it will require a multifaceted approach that takes into account the unique needs and challenges faced by different racial and ethnic groups. In conclusion, the study conducted by Emmons and Ricketts sheds important light on the factors that contribute to racial and ethnic wealth gaps in higher education. While there is no easy solution to these complex issues, it is clear that we must take action to address them if we hope to promote greater equity and opportunity for all Americans. By increasing financial literacy, promoting greater access to credit and financial services, and addressing systemic issues such as discrimination and redlining, we can begin to close the wealth gaps that exist between different racial and ethnic groups. Thank you for listening to our podcast on this important topic. We hope that you have gained a better understanding of the factors that contribute to racial and ethnic wealth gaps in higher education and the potential remedies for addressing them. Remember, by working together and taking action, we can create a more equitable and just
Welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing the topic of family structure, its impact on wealth differentials in the United States. This is an important topic that affects many families and individuals across the country, and we hope to shed some light on the issue. First, let's define what we mean by family structure. Family structure refers to the composition of a household, including the number of adults and children, their relationship to each other, and their living arrangements. In the United States, there are many different types of family structures, including married couples, single-parent households, and multi-generational households. One of the key findings of research on family structure and wealth is that there are significant racial and ethnic disparities in income and wealth in the United States. For example, African-American and Hispanic families have lower levels of income and wealth than white families, even when controlling for factors such as education and occupation. One possible explanation for these disparities is differences in family structure. Research has shown that African-American and Hispanic families are more likely to be headed by a single parent than white families. Single-parent households are more likely to experience poverty and financial insecurity than two-parent households, which can contribute to lower levels of wealth over time. Another factor that may contribute to differences in wealth across different family structures is the intergenerational transmission of wealth. Wealthy families are more likely to pass on their wealth to their children, which can help to maintain or increase their wealth over time. However, families with fewer resources may not have the same opportunities to pass on wealth to their children, which can contribute to lower levels of wealth over time. One potential solution to address these disparities is to focus on policies that support families and promote economic mobility. For example, policies that provide access to affordable childcare, paid family leave, and affordable housing can help to support families and reduce financial stress. Additionally, policies that promote education and job training can help to increase economic mobility and reduce disparities in income and wealth. In conclusion, Family structure is an important factor that can contribute to differences in wealth across different racial and ethnic groups in the United States. By understanding these disparities and working to address them through policy solutions, we can help to promote greater economic mobility and reduce inequality in our society. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode, and we hope you found it informative and thought-provoking. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode on family structure and its impact on wealth differentials in the United States. We hope that this discussion has provided you with a better understanding of the issue and the potential solutions that can help to address it. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. We appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more informative content in the future. Welcome to this episode of our podcast, where we will be discussing the complex relationship between college education and wealth. This is a topic that has been the subject of much research and debate, and we hope to provide you with a comprehensive overview of the issue. 
College education has long been seen as a pathway to upward mobility and financial success. However, recent research has shown that this is not always the case, particularly for certain racial and ethnic groups. The articles in this PDF explore the reasons behind this phenomenon and offer potential solutions to address the declining levels of wealth for college-educated Blacks and Hispanics. One of the main themes that emerges from the research is the importance of family wealth in determining the financial outcomes of college graduates. While college education is certainly a factor in achieving financial success, it is not the only one. Family wealth, including inheritances and other family transfers, plays a significant role in determining the financial outcomes of college graduates. This is particularly true for Black and Hispanic families, who are less likely to have access to intergenerational wealth than their white and Asian counterparts. Another important factor that emerges from the research is the role of homeownership in determining wealth outcomes. Black and Hispanic households are more likely to experience serious delinquency and foreclosure rates than white and Asian households, which can have a significant impact on their long-term financial stability. This is particularly true for minority borrowers who faced repayment difficulties well before the economic downturn. The articles in this PDF also challenge standard economic models that attempt to explain differences in wealth outcomes with differences in financial choices or behavior alone. While observable factors can explain over two-thirds of the black-white wealth gap, this model assumes that all racial and ethnic groups generate equal returns to education and face the exact same choices and opportunity structures. The research suggests that a systemic or structural framing may offer a better explanation of persistent gaps. So, what are some potential solutions to address the declining levels of wealth for college-educated Blacks and Hispanics? The articles in this PDF offer a number of suggestions, including increasing access to intergenerational wealth through policies such as inheritance taxes and expanding access to affordable homeownership. Additionally, the articles suggest that addressing the quality differences among colleges and universities may help to close the racial. In conclusion, the articles in this PDF provide a comprehensive overview of the complex relationship between college education and wealth, particularly for different racial and ethnic groups. While college education is certainly a factor in achieving financial success, it is not the only one. Family wealth, homeownership, and systemic factors all play a significant role in determining the financial outcomes of college graduates. The research suggests that addressing these factors will be critical in closing the racial and ethnic wealth gaps and ensuring that college education remains a pathway to upward mobility and financial success for all. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. We hope that you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. If you would like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to read the articles in this PDF and to continue exploring the research on the complex relationship between college education Hello and welcome to our podcast on explaining black-white differences in college outcomes at
Missouri Public Universities. Today, we will be discussing the racial disparities in college completion rates and STEM degree attainment between African American and white students in Missouri. College education is often seen as a pathway to upward mobility and economic success. However, not all students have equal access to this opportunity. In Missouri, African American students are less likely to complete college and earn a STEM degree than their white peers. This is a significant issue that has far-reaching consequences for individuals, families, and society as a whole. So, what are the factors that contribute to these disparities? One major factor is academic preparation. African-American students are more likely to come from disadvantaged backgrounds and attend under-resourced schools that do not adequately prepare them for college-level coursework. This puts them at a disadvantage when they enter college and can lead to lower graduation rates and lower STEM degree attainment rates. Another factor is the lack of support and resources available to African-American students once they enter college. Many African-American students face social and cultural barriers that can make it difficult for them to succeed in college. For example, they may feel isolated or experience discrimination on campus. Additionally, they may not have access to the same resources and support networks as their white peers, such as academic advising, mentoring, and internships. The consequences of these disparities are significant. African-American students who do not complete college or earn a STEM degree are more likely to face economic hardship and unemployment. This, in turn, can have negative effects on their families and communities. Furthermore, the lack of diversity in STEM fields can limit innovation and progress in these fields, which can have far-reaching consequences for society as a whole. So, what can be done to address these disparities? One solution is to provide more support and resources to African-American students throughout their college experience. This could include targeted academic advising, mentoring programs, and internships. Additionally, Colleges and universities can work to create a more inclusive and welcoming environment for African-American students by addressing issues of discrimination and bias on campus. Another solution is to address the root causes of these disparities by investing in K-12 education and providing more resources to under-resourced schools. By improving academic preparation for all students, we can help to ensure that all students have an equal opportunity to succeed in college and beyond. In conclusion, the racial disparities in college completion rates and STEM degree attainment between African-American and white students in Missouri are a significant issue that requires attention and action. By addressing the root causes of these disparities and providing more support and resources to African-American students, we can help to ensure that all students have an equal opportunity to succeed in college and beyond this is not only important for the individual students and their families, but also for society as a whole. By promoting diversity and inclusion in higher education and STEM fields, we can help to drive innovation and progress and create a better future for all. Thank you for listening to our podcast on explaining black-white differences in college outcomes.
Hello and welcome to our podcast on the relationship between college education and wealth. Accumulation for different racial groups. Today, we will be discussing a recent study conducted by Tatjana Mesquede, Joanna Taylor, Alexis Mann, and Thomas Shapiro that sheds light on the disparities in wealth accumulation between white and black college-educated households. The study highlights the fact that, despite having a college degree, black households tend to accumulate less wealth than their white counterparts. This is due to a variety of factors, including historical and structural racism, discrimination in the labor market, and limited access to financial resources. The authors argue that these disparities have significant implications for intergenerational mobility and economic security. One of the key findings of the study is that family financial transfers play a crucial role in wealth accumulation for both white and black households. However, the impact of these transfers is not equal across racial groups. White households are more likely to receive large financial gifts and inheritances from their families, which helps them to accumulate wealth over time. Black households, on the other hand, are less likely to receive such transfers, which puts them at a disadvantage when it comes to building wealth. The study also highlights the fact that inheritance involves much more than the common understanding of large bequests at the death of parents or grandparents. The traditional distinction wonders about in vivo transfers, but with increasingly better and deeper data, the time has come to move toward a more robust and analytically accurate notion of inheritance that includes as many intergenerational human and financial transfers as possible. Quite specifically, this picture must include financial assistance with a home purchase, support for higher education, large gifts to young families, financial starter packages as weddings gifts, the funding of private schooling, test prep, and summer camps, and so on. So, what can be done to address these disparities? The authors suggest a number of policy interventions, including increasing access to affordable higher education, expanding access to credit and financial services, and implementing targeted programs to support black households in building wealth. They also emphasize the need for broader structural changes to address the root causes of racial inequality in the United States. Overall, this study provides important insights into the relationship between college education and wealth accumulation for different racial groups. It highlights the fact that while a college degree can be an important tool for upward mobility, it is not enough to overcome the structural barriers that limit the economic opportunities of black households. By understanding the role of family financial transfers in wealth accumulation and advocating for policy interventions to address racial inequality, we can work towards a more equitable and just society. In conclusion, the study conducted by Mesquede, Taylor, Mann, and Shapiro sheds light on the complex relationship between college education and wealth accumulation for different racial groups. It highlights the fact that while a college degree can be an important tool for upward mobility, it is not enough to overcome the structural barriers that limit the economic opportunities of black households. By understanding the role of family financial transfers in wealth accumulation and advocating for policy interventions to address racial inequality, we can work towards a more equitable and just society. Thank you for listening to our podcast on this important topic. We hope that this discussion has provided you with valuable insights and inspired you to take action to address
Hello and welcome to our podcast on the topic of wealth and race in college education. Today, we will be discussing the unequal distribution of wealth and how it affects different racial and ethnic groups in the United States. Wealth disparities have been a persistent issue in the United States for decades. The gap between the rich and poor continues to widen, and this gap is particularly pronounced when it comes to race. Studies have shown that people of color are more likely to live in poverty and have less access to resources than their white counterparts. One area where these disparities are particularly evident is in college education. While higher education is often touted as a way to achieve upward mobility and increase one's earning potential, the reality is that not all students have equal access to these opportunities. Students from low-income families and underrepresented racial and ethnic groups are less likely to attend college and more likely to drop out if they do enroll. This is where the PDF we will be discussing today comes in. The article, written by Emmons and Ricketts, explores the relationship between race, education, and wealth accumulation. The authors argue that traditional economic models fail to account for the structural factors that contribute to wealth disparities, such as discrimination, historical disadvantage, and unequal access to resources. One of the key findings of the study is that minorities are more likely to receive degrees in lower-paying fields, such as education. This is due in part to the fact that these fields are often seen as more accessible to students from low income, families, and underrepresented groups. However, this also means that these students are less likely to accumulate wealth over time, as they are earning less money than their peers in higher-paying fields. Another important point raised in the article is the fact that race is often used as a variable in quantitative research methods, which can lead to oversimplification of complex issues. Instead of trying to understand what race is and is not, the authors argue that we should focus on the structural factors that contribute to wealth disparities, such as discrimination, historical disadvantage, and unequal access to resources. Overall, the article provides a thought-provoking analysis of the relationship between race, education, and wealth accumulation. It challenges traditional economic models and calls for a more nuanced understanding of the structural factors that contribute to wealth disparities. In conclusion, the issue of wealth and race in college education is a complex and multifaceted one. While higher education is often seen as a way to achieve upward mobility and increase one's earning potential, the reality is that not all students have equal access to these opportunities. Wealth disparities are particularly pronounced when it comes to race, with people of color more likely to live in poverty and have less access to resources than their white counterparts. The PDF we discussed today sheds light on the structural factors that contribute to these disparities, such as discrimination, historical disadvantage, and unequal access to resources. By challenging traditional economic models and calling for a more nuanced understanding of these factors, we can work towards creating a more equitable society where all students have equal access to opportunities for upward mobility and wealth accumulation. Thank you for listening to our podcast.
Hello and welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing the racial wealth gap and its impact on society. This is an important issue that affects millions of people in the United States and around the world. In this episode, we will be exploring the key factors contributing to the wealth gap as well as potential solutions to address this issue. The racial wealth gap refers to the significant disparities in wealth between different racial and ethnic groups. According to recent studies, the median wealth of white households is nearly 10 times that of black households and 8 times that of Hispanic households. This gap has significant implications for economic mobility, social equity, and overall well-being. One of the key factors contributing to the wealth gap is historical and ongoing discrimination. For centuries, people of color have faced systemic barriers to economic opportunity, including slavery, segregation, and redlining. These policies and practices have limited access to education, housing, and employment, which in turn has limited wealth accumulation and intergenerational mobility. Another factor contributing to the wealth gap is the lack of access to financial resources and services. Many people of color live in low-income communities that lack access to affordable banking, credit, and investment opportunities. This limits their ability to save, invest, and build wealth over time. So, what can be done to address the racial wealth gap? There are several potential solutions that policymakers and individuals can pursue one approach is to implement policies that promote greater economic equity, such as increasing access to affordable housing, education, and health care. This can help to level the playing field and provide more opportunities for people of color to build wealth and achieve economic mobility. Another approach is to address the root causes of discrimination and systemic inequality. This may involve implementing policies that promote greater diversity and inclusion in the workplace as well as addressing issues such as police brutality and mass incarceration. By addressing these underlying issues, we can create a more just and equitable society for all. Individuals and communities can also play a role in reducing the wealth gap. This may involve supporting local businesses and organizations that promote economic opportunity and social equity. It may also involve advocating for policies and practices that promote greater diversity and inclusion in all aspects of society. In conclusion, the racial wealth gap is a complex and multifaceted issue that requires a comprehensive approach to address. By understanding the root causes of this issue and implementing policies and practices that promote greater economic equity and social justice, we can create a more just and equitable society for all. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode and we hope that you will join us in our ongoing discussions about important social issues. Remember, we all have a role to play in creating a more just and equitable world, and by working together, we can make a difference. Thank you for tuning in. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the political economy of education, financial literacy, 
the racial wealth gap. Today we will be discussing some of the key issues surrounding wealth disparity and the role of education in financial decision-making. Firstly, it is important to understand that wealth serves as an indicator of economic security and political power. Those who have more wealth are often able to access better education, healthcare, and job opportunities, which in turn can lead to greater political influence. Unfortunately, there are significant racial disparities in wealth accumulation in the United States, with Black and Latino households experiencing significantly lower levels of wealth than their white counterparts. One of the common misconceptions surrounding wealth disparity is that it is solely the result of poor financial decision-making on the part of marginalized communities. However, this is not the case. Structural inequalities such as discriminatory lending practices and unequal access to education and job opportunities play a significant role in perpetuating the racial wealth gap. Education is often touted as a solution to wealth disparity with the belief that higher levels of education will lead to better job opportunities. While education is certainly important, it is not a panacea for the racial wealth gap. In fact, even highly educated Black and Latino households still experience significantly lower levels of wealth than their white counterparts. Financial literacy is another important factor in addressing the racial wealth gap. Many marginalized communities lack access to financial education and resources, which can make it difficult to make informed, financial decisions. However, simply providing financial education is not enough. Structural inequalities must also be addressed in order to create a more equitable financial system. So, what are some potential solutions to address the racial wealth gap and improve financial literacy among marginalized communities? One solution is to address discriminatory lending practices and increase access to affordable credit. This can be done through policies such as the Community Reinvestment Act, which requires banks to invest in the communities they serve. Another solution is to increase access to education and job opportunities. This can be done through policies such as affirmative action and increased funding for public education. Additionally, providing financial education and resources to marginalized communities can help to improve financial literacy and empower individuals to make informed financial decisions. In conclusion, the racial wealth gap is a complex issue that requires a multifaceted approach to address. By addressing structural inequalities, increasing access to education and job opportunities, and providing financial education and resources, we can work towards creating a more equitable financial system and closing the racial wealth gap. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the political economy of education, financial literacy, and the racial into the misconceptions surrounding wealth disparity and the role of education in financial decision-making. Remember, it is important to recognize that wealth serves as an indicator of economic security and political power, and that addressing the racial wealth gap requires a multifaceted approach. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the topic of why wealth varies among college graduates. In this episode, 
we will be discussing the role of education in the racial wealth gap and the impact of the Great Recession on communities of color. First, let's define what we mean by the racial wealth gap. This refers to the disparity in wealth between different racial and ethnic groups in the United States. According to a report by the Federal Reserve, the median wealth of white households is 10 times that of black households and 8 times that of Hispanic households. This gap has persisted for decades and is influenced by a variety of factors, including historical discrimination, systemic racism, and unequal access to resources and opportunities. One factor that is often cited as a potential solution to the racial wealth gap is education. It is commonly believed that higher levels of education lead to higher earnings, savings, and investment potential, which in turn can help individuals and families build wealth over time. However, as we will see, the relationship between education and wealth is more complex than it may seem. One of the main challenges in addressing the racial wealth gap is the fact that it is influenced by both structural and behavioral factors. Structural factors refer to systemic issues such as discrimination and historical inequities that are codified in our legal and policy systems. Behavioral factors refer to individual choices and behaviors related to personal finance such as saving, investing, and spending habits. While addressing structural factors is essential for eliminating the racial wealth gap completely, it is also important to consider how personal decisions and attitudes about money can impact financial outcomes for historically disadvantaged groups. However, as we will see, personal decisions become more challenging when the available choices are limited from the start. The Great Recession of 2008 had a significant impact on communities of color, particularly in terms of housing wealth. When house prices plummeted, many families lost their homes or saw the value of their homes decrease dramatically. This had a ripple effect on their overall financial stability and ability to build wealth over time. While efforts have been made to rebuild wealth in these communities, the impact of the recession is still being felt today. So what can we do to address the racial wealth gap and promote greater financial equity? One potential solution is to focus on education and financial literacy. By providing individuals and families with the tools and resources they need to make informed decisions about their finances, we can help them build wealth over time and break the cycle of poverty. However, it is also important to address the systemic issues that contribute to the racial wealth gap, such as discrimination in the job market, unequal access to education and training, and disparities in access to credit and financial services. Another potential solution is to promote policies that support wealth building for historically disadvantaged groups. This could include policies such as targeted tax credits, affordable housing initiatives, and increased access to small business loans and other forms of capital. Ultimately, addressing the racial wealth gap will require a multifaceted approach that addresses both structural and behavioral factors. By working together to promote greater financial equity and opportunity, we can help ensure that all individuals and families have the chance to build wealth and achieve financial stability. Thank you for listening to our podcast on this important topic, and we hope you will join us again for future episodes.
Hello and welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing Chinese foreign exchange reserves, policy choices, and the U.S. economy. In this episode, we will be exploring the role that China plays in the global economy and how their policy choices can impact the United States. China is the world's second largest economy and has been growing at an unprecedented rate over the past few decades. As a result, China has accumulated a significant amount of foreign exchange reserves, which are assets held by a country's central bank in foreign currencies. These reserves are used to stabilize the value of a country's currency, provide liquidity in times of crisis, and finance international trade. However, in recent years, China's foreign exchange reserves have been declining. This decline is due to a combination of factors, including a slowdown in China's economic growth capital outflows, and a shift in China's economic policy towards a more consumption-driven model. This decline in foreign exchange reserves has raised concerns about China's ability to manage its currency and its impact on the global economy. One potential impact of China's declining foreign exchange reserves is a hard landing in China's economy. A hard landing refers to a sudden and severe economic downturn that could have significant ripple effects throughout the global economy. If China's economy were to experience a hard landing, it could lead to a decrease in demand for U.S. exports, a decline in global commodity prices, and a decrease in global economic growth. To manage their foreign exchange reserves and their impact on the global economy, China has several policy options. One option is to continue to allow their currency to depreciate which would make their exports more competitive and help to boost their economy. However, this could also lead to tensions with other countries, particularly the United States, who may view this as a form of currency manipulation. Another option for China is to implement capital controls, which would restrict the flow of capital in and out of the country. This would help to stabilize their currency and prevent capital outflows, but it could also limit foreign investment in China and lead to tensions with other countries. Overall, China's foreign exchange reserves and policy choices have significant implications for the global economy, particularly the United States. As China continues to grow and evolve, it will be important for policymakers to monitor their policy choices and their impact on the global economy. In conclusion, China's foreign exchange reserves and policy choices are complex issues that, have significant implications for the global economy. As China continues to grow and evolve, it will be important for policymakers to monitor their policy choices and their impact on the global economy. The United States and other countries will need to work together with China to ensure that their policies are transparent, fair, and promote global economic growth. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode on Chinese foreign exchange reserves, policy choices, and the U.S. economy. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing household debt and the Great Recession. This is a topic that affects many people and it's important to understand how it impacts our economy 
and our daily lives. First, let's define what we mean by household debt. Household debt refers to the amount of money that individuals owe to lenders, such as credit card companies, mortgage lenders, and other financial institutions. This debt can be in the form of secured debt, such as a mortgage, or unsecured debt, such as credit card debt. The Great Recession, which occurred between 2007 and 2009, was a severe economic downturn that had a significant impact on the U.S. economy. One of the main causes of the Great Recession was the housing bubble, which was fueled by the availability of easy credit and low interest rates. Many people took out mortgages that they could not afford, and when the housing market crashed, they were left with homes that were worth less than what they owed on their mortgages. This led to a wave of foreclosures and a significant increase in household debt. Many people were unable to pay their bills, and this had a ripple effect throughout the economy. Banks and other financial institutions suffered significant losses, and the stock market plummeted. Since the Great Recession, there have been significant changes in household debt. Many people have been working to pay off their debts, and there has been a decrease in the amount of debt held by households. However, there are still concerns about the level of debt held by many Americans, particularly in the form of student loans and credit card debt. One of the key takeaways from this discussion is that household debt can have a significant impact on the economy. When people are unable to pay their bills, it can lead to a wave of defaults and foreclosures, which can have a ripple effect throughout the economy. It's important for individuals to be aware of their debt levels and to work to pay off their debts in a timely manner. In conclusion, household debt and the Great Recession are important topics that affect many people. It's important to understand how these issues impact our economy and our daily lives. By working to pay off our debts and being aware of our financial situation, we can help to ensure a stable and prosperous future for ourselves and our families. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode, and we hope you found it informative and helpful. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode on household debt and the Great Recession. We hope that you have gained a better understanding of these important topics and how they impact our economy and our daily lives. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Remember, by being aware of our debt levels and working to pay off our debts, we can help to ensure a stable and prosperous future for ourselves and our families. Thank you again for... Hello and welcome to this podcast episode, where we will be discussing the topic of resource. Misallocation and Manufacturing Total Factor Productivity, TFP, in Korea, from 1982 to 2007. To start off, let's define what TFP is. TFP is a measure of the efficiency with which inputs are used in production. It is calculated as the ratio of total output to the total amount of inputs used in production.
TFP is an important determinant of a country's income differences, as it reflects the ability of a country to produce more output with the same amount of inputs. Now, let's dive into the main topic of this podcast episode, Resource Misallocation and Manufacturing TFP in Korea. Resource misallocation refers to the inefficient allocation of resources across different production units. This can occur due to various reasons such as government regulations, market imperfections, and lack of competition. The PDF we are discussing today explores the impact of resource misallocation on manufacturing TFP in Korea from 1982 to 2007. The authors of the PDF use detailed micro-level production side analyses to estimate the quantitative importance of within-country allocative efficiency on aggregate TFP. The authors find that resource misallocation has a significant impact on manufacturing TFP in Korea. They estimate that if the resource misallocation in Korea were reduced to the level in the U.S. manufacturing sector, Korea's manufacturing TFP would rise by as much as 30%. The authors also discuss the impact of economic policies on resource misallocation and manufacturing TFP in Korea. They find that the economic policies introduced in 1993, which emphasized deregulation, ended up amplifying the market powers of large business groups, rather than achieving more efficiency through competition. This led to a decline in allocative efficiency since 1992. The authors suggest that policies aimed at reducing resource misallocation can help improve manufacturing TFP in Korea. They suggest policies such as reducing barriers to entry, improving access to credit, and promoting competition. Overall, this PDF provides valuable insights into the impact of resource misallocation on manufacturing TFP in Korea. It highlights the importance of efficient resource allocation in improving TFP and suggests potential policy solutions to address resource misallocation. In conclusion, we hope this podcast episode has provided you with a better understanding of the topic of resource misallocation and manufacturing TFP in Korea. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to bringing you more informative episodes in the future. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode on resource misallocation and manufacturing. TFP in Korea. We hope you found this discussion informative and insightful. If you would like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to read the PDF we discussed in this episode. It provides a detailed analysis of the impact of resource misallocation on manufacturing TFP in Korea and offers potential policy solutions to address this issue. Stay tuned for more episodes on a variety of topics related to economic Welcome to our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the 2009 Recovery Act and its impact on the nation's highways and bridges. 
This act was a significant investment of nearly $28 billion in transportation infrastructure with the goal of creating jobs and improving the country's infrastructure. The Recovery Act was passed in response to the 2008 financial crisis, which had a significant impact on the country's economy. The act included a variety of measures to stimulate economic growth, including investments in transportation infrastructure. The Federal Highway Administration was responsible for allocating the funds to states and local governments for highway and bridge projects. Despite the significant investment, the highway system saw no significant improvement. This was due to a variety of factors, including the fungibility of the grants and the incentives for state governments to shift funds. This meant that little of the Recovery Act's highway funds may have ended up being spent on highways. Actual highway infrastructure spending may have been very similar to that under a No Recovery Act counterfactual. The author of the PDF, Bill Dupour, conducted a cross-state comparison of states' behavior following the receipt of funds. He found that there was little discernible positive or negative correlation in the data. If there were no crowding out, that is, each grant dollar was spent on highways and no other disturbances, then the points would lie on the 45-degree line. This experience provides valuable insights for future transportation infrastructure investments. It highlights the importance of ensuring that funds are allocated in a way that ensures they are spent on the intended projects. It also underscores the need for careful monitoring and evaluation of infrastructure investments to ensure that they are achieving their intended goals. In conclusion, the 2009 Recovery Act was a significant investment in transportation infrastructure that aimed to create jobs and improve the country's infrastructure. However, despite the significant investment, the highway system saw no significant improvement. This experience provides valuable insights for future transportation infrastructure investments and underscores the importance of careful monitoring and evaluation to ensure that investments are achieving their intended goals. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you found this discussion informative and insightful. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the impact of local labor markets on retirement decisions. Today, we will be discussing a recent study by Leora Friedberg, Michael T. Ouyang, Wei Sun, and Anthony Webb, which explores how business cycles affect the retirement decisions of older workers. As we all know, retirement is a major life transition that can be influenced by a variety of factors, including personal preferences, financial considerations, and health status. However, this study focuses on the role of local labor markets in shaping retirement decisions, particularly for older workers who may face unique challenges in the job market. So, what exactly do we mean by local labor markets? Essentially, this refers to the conditions and opportunities available in a particular geographic area, such as a city or region. 
For example, if a local economy is booming and there are many job openings, workers may be more likely to stay in the workforce longer and delay retirement. On the other hand, if there are few job opportunities or high levels of unemployment, workers may be forced to retire earlier than they would like. The study by Friedberg and others uses data from the Health and Retirement Study, HRS, a longitudinal survey of older Americans, to examine how local labor market conditions affect retirement decisions. Specifically, the researchers look at how involuntary job loss among older workers in the HRS spurs early retirement and how annual job transitions for aging workers are influenced by local labor market conditions. One key finding of the study is that older workers who experience involuntary job loss are more likely to retire early, even if they had planned to work longer. This is because they may have difficulty finding new employment, especially if they have health issues or other factors that make them less attractive to employers. In addition, the study finds that older workers who experience earnings losses are also more likely to retire early, as they may not be able to afford to continue working. Another important finding of the study is that local labor market conditions can have a significant impact on retirement decisions. For example, workers who live in areas with high unemployment rates are more likely to retire early, as they may have difficulty finding new employment. On the other hand, workers who live in areas with low unemployment rates are more likely to delay retirement, as they may have more job opportunities and higher earnings potential. So, what are the implications of these findings for policymakers and employers? One key takeaway is that local labor market conditions can have a significant impact on retirement decisions and that policies and programs aimed at supporting older workers should take these conditions into account. For example, policymakers could consider targeted job training, programs or incentives for employers to hire older workers in areas with high unemployment rates. Employers could also consider offering flexible work arrangements or phased retirement options to help older workers transition out of the workforce gradually. In addition, the study highlights the importance of retirement planning and financial literacy for older workers. Workers who have saved more for retirement may be better able to weather job losses or earnings reductions and may be more likely to delay retirement if they choose to do so. Employers and policymakers could consider offering financial education programs or retirement planning resources to help workers prepare for retirement. Overall, this study sheds light on the complex factors that influence retirement decisions and highlights the importance of considering local labor market conditions in retirement planning and policy. As our population ages and more workers approach retirement age, it will be increasingly important to understand these dynamics and develop strategies to support older workers in navigating the challenges of retirement. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and we hope you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode, where we will be discussing the topic of terrorism, trade, and welfare. This is a complex and important issue that affects not only individual countries, but also the global economy as a whole. 
Terrorism is a multifaceted issue that has far-reaching consequences. It can affect both producers and consumers, and its incidence is generally endogenous to a nation's policymakers through proactive counterterrorism policies against the perpetrators or through defensive counterterrorism policies. In economics and political science, there is a large and emerging literature on this topic. In this podcast, we will be exploring the impact of terrorism on economic growth and trade. We will be discussing the research of Subhayu Bandyopadhyay, Todd Sandler and Javed Yunus, who have written a paper on this topic. The authors argue that terrorism can have a significant impact on economic growth and trade. They suggest that terrorism can reduce the supply of goods and services, increase the cost of production, and disrupt trade flows. This can lead to a reduction in economic growth and welfare. The authors also suggest that counterterrorism policies can have a significant impact on economic growth and trade. They argue that proactive policies, such as increased security measures and intelligence gathering, can reduce the incidence of terrorism and increase economic growth. Defensive policies, such as insurance and contingency planning, can also help to reduce the impact of terrorism on economic growth and trade. However, the authors also note that there are limitations to these policies. Proactive policies can be expensive and may not be effective in all cases. Defensive policies can also be expensive and may not be able to fully protect against the impact of terrorism. The authors also suggest that economic development and poverty reduction can help to prevent terrorism. They argue that poverty and economic inequality can create conditions that are conducive to terrorism. By promoting economic development and reducing poverty, governments can help to reduce the incidence of terrorism. Overall, this is a complex and important issue that requires careful consideration. Terrorism can have a significant impact on economic growth and trade, and it is important for policymakers to develop effective strategies for reducing its incidence and impact. In conclusion, we hope that this podcast has provided you with a better understanding of the impact of terrorism on economic growth and trade. We encourage you to read the research of Subhayu Bandiopadhyay, Todd Sandler, and Javed Yunus to learn more about this important topic. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast episode on terrorism, trade, and welfare. We hope that you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. It is important to remember that terrorism is a complex issue that requires a multifaceted approach. While counterterrorism policies can help to reduce the incidence of terrorism, they are not a panacea. Economic development and poverty reduction can also play an important role in preventing terrorism. We encourage you to continue learning about this important topic and to engage in discussions with others. By working together, we can develop effective strategies for reducing the incidence and impact of terrorism on economic growth and trade. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more informative and
Hello and welcome to our podcast on the topic of life cycle earnings profiles. In this episode, we'll be discussing the trends and factors that contribute to the flattening of earnings growth over the life cycle for workers in recent cohorts compared to those in earlier cohorts. First, let's define what we mean by life cycle earnings profiles. This refers to the pattern of earnings over a person's working life, from the beginning of their career to retirement. Traditionally, it was believed that earnings would increase steadily over time as workers gained experience and skills, but recent research has shown that this is no longer the case. So, what factors are contributing to the flattening of earnings growth over the life cycle? One major factor is the changing nature of the labor market. In the past, workers could expect to stay with one employer for their entire career and receive regular promotions and pay increases. However, in today's economy, workers are more likely to change jobs frequently and may not receive the same level of pay increases or promotions as in the past. Another factor is the increasing importance of education and skills in the labor market. Workers with higher levels of education and skills tend to earn more over their lifetime, but the cost of obtaining these credentials has also increased. This means that workers may need to take on more debt to finance their education, which can limit their ability to save for retirement or invest in other areas. Additionally, changes in technology and automation have also had an impact on earnings growth over the life cycle. Some jobs that were once high-paying and required specialized skills are now being automated or outsourced, which can lead to lower wages and fewer opportunities for workers in those industries. So, how do these trends in earnings growth affect different education levels and industries? Research has shown that workers with higher levels of education tend to have more stable and higher-paying jobs over their lifetime, while those with lower levels of education may experience more volatility in their earnings and have fewer opportunities for advancement. Additionally, certain industries, such as manufacturing and construction, have experienced declines in wages and employment opportunities in recent years. Finally, are there any potential solutions or policy changes that could address this issue? Some experts have suggested increasing access to education and training programs to help workers develop the skills needed for higher-paying jobs. Others have proposed policies such as increasing the minimum wage, or providing more support for workers in industries that are experiencing declines. In conclusion, the flattening of earnings growth over the life cycle is a complex issue that is influenced by a variety of factors, including changes in the labor market, the increasing importance of education and skills, and changes in technology and automation. These trends have had a significant impact on workers in different education levels and industries, with some experiencing more stability and higher pay than others, while there is no one-size-fits-all solution to this issue, there are potential policy changes and initiatives that could help address the challenges faced by workers in today's economy. By understanding the factors that contribute to the flattening of earnings growth over the life cycle, we can work towards creating a more equitable and sustainable labor market for all workers. Thank you for listening.
Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the fascinating topic of fiscal federalism and optimal income taxes. This is a complex and important subject that affects all of us, whether we realize it or not. At its core, fiscal federalism is the study of how different levels of government in a country interact with each other and with the economy as a whole. In many countries, including the United States, there are multiple levels of government, such as a federal government and various state and local governments. Each of these levels has its own responsibilities and powers, and they often work together to provide public goods and services to citizens. One of the key ways that governments provide these public goods and services is through taxation. Taxes are a way for governments to raise revenue that can be used to fund various programs and initiatives. However, the way that taxes are structured and implemented can have a significant impact on the economy and on individual citizens. This is where the concept of optimal income taxes comes in. Optimal income taxes are taxes that are designed to maximize social welfare, which is a measure of the overall well-being of society. In order to design optimal income taxes, economists must take into account a wide range of factors, including the distribution of income, the provision of public goods and services, and the behavior of individuals and firms in the economy. One of the challenges of designing optimal income taxes is that different levels of government may have different goals and priorities. For example, a state government may be more focused on providing public goods and services to its own citizens, while the federal government may be more concerned with promoting economic growth and stability across the entire country. This can lead to conflicts and inefficiencies in the tax system. Another important factor to consider when designing optimal income taxes is the impact of taxes on migration decisions. When taxes are high in one area, individuals and firms may choose to move to another area with lower taxes. This can have significant implications for the economy as a whole, as well as for the distribution of income and the provision of public goods and services. Overall, the study of fiscal federalism and optimal income taxes is a complex and important field that has significant implications for the economy and for individual citizens. By understanding the interactions between different levels of government and the impact of taxes on the economy, we can work towards designing a tax system that maximizes social welfare and promotes economic growth and stability. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast, and we hope that you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. If you would like to learn more about fiscal federalism and optimal income taxes, we encourage you to read the PDF file that we have been discussing. It provides a detailed and comprehensive overview of the subject and is a valuable resource for anyone interested in economics and public policy. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more informative and engaging discussions. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode, where we will be discussing the topic of industrial and occupational employment changes during the Great Recession. The Great Recession, 
which lasted from 2007 to 2009, was a period of economic downturn that had a significant impact on the labor market. During this time, many industries and occupations experienced employment contraction, leading to high levels of unemployment and underemployment. This PDF file provides valuable insights into the labor market dynamics during and after the recession, breaking down employment changes across industries and occupations. The authors of this paper have conducted extensive research and analysis to understand the patterns and trends in employment changes during this period. One of the key findings of this paper is that the recession had a significant impact on the labor market, with many industries experiencing employment contraction. The construction and manufacturing industries were particularly hard hit, with significant job losses during the recession. However, the recovery of the labor market differed across occupations with some occupations experiencing faster recovery than others. Another important finding of this paper is that there were significant differences in the employment changes across industries and occupations. For example, the authors found that the decline in employment in routine occupations was more pronounced than in non-routine occupations. This suggests that there was a shift in the demand for labor towards non-routine tasks, which require more cognitive and interpersonal skills. Overall, this PDF file provides valuable insights into the labor market dynamics during and after the Great Recession. It highlights the significant impact of the recession on the labor market and the differences in employment changes across industries and occupations. This information can be useful for policymakers, researchers, and anyone interested in understanding the labor market dynamics during periods of economic downturn. In conclusion, the Great Recession was a challenging period for the labor market, with many industries and occupations experiencing employment contraction. However, this PDF file provides valuable insights into the patterns and trends in employment changes during this period, highlighting the differences across industries and occupations. We hope that this podcast episode has provided you with a better understanding of the labor market dynamics during and after the Great Recession. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast episode on industrial and occupational employment changes during the Great Recession. We hope that you found this discussion informative and insightful. If you would like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to read the PDF file that we have been discussing. As always, we welcome your feedback and suggestions for future podcast episodes. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you for listening and we look forward to bringing you more informative and engaging Hello and welcome to our podcast on living standards in St. Louis and the 8th Federal Reserve District. Today, we will be discussing the economic performance of the St. Louis area and the challenges it faces in maintaining and improving its living standards. St. Louis is a city with a rich history and a diverse economy. It is home to several Fortune 500 companies, including Anheuser-Busch, Emerson Electric, and Express Scripts. 
The city has a strong manufacturing base, with industries such as aerospace, automotive and defense playing a significant role in its economy. Additionally, St. Louis has a thriving healthcare sector, with several world-renowned hospitals and medical research facilities located in the area. Despite its strengths, St. Louis faces several challenges in maintaining and improving its living standards. One of the biggest challenges is the decline in population. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the population of St. Louis has declined by over since its peak in the S. This decline has been driven by several factors, including suburbanization, deindustrialization, and racial tensions. Another challenge facing St. Louis is the high poverty rate. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the poverty rate in St. Louis is over 25%, which is significantly higher than the national average. This has led to a wide range of social and economic problems, including crime, poor health outcomes, and low educational attainment. To address these challenges, policymakers in St. Louis and the 8th Federal Reserve District have implemented a range of policies and programs aimed at improving the city's economic performance and living standards. These policies include investments in infrastructure, workforce development, and education, as well as efforts to attract new businesses and industries to the area. One of the key tools used by policymakers to measure living standards in St. Louis and other metropolitan areas is the Regional Price Parity, RPPE, index. This index measures the differences in the cost of living across different metropolitan areas, taking into account factors such as housing, food, and transportation costs. By comparing the RPP index across different areas, policymakers can gain insights into the relative affordability of different regions and the factors that contribute to these differences. Overall, the economic performance of St. Louis and the 8th Federal Reserve District is complex and multifaceted. While the area has many strengths, it also faces significant challenges in maintaining and improving its living standards. By implementing effective policies and programs, however, Policymakers can help to address these challenges and create a more prosperous and equitable future for the region and its residents. It is important to note that the challenges facing St. Louis are not unique to the area, and many other cities and regions across the country face similar issues. By sharing best practices and working together, policymakers can learn from each other and develop more effective strategies for improving living standards and promoting economic growth. In conclusion, St. Louis and the 8th Federal Reserve District are facing significant challenges in maintaining and improving their living standards. However, by implementing effective policies and programs, policymakers can help to address these challenges and create a more prosperous and equitable future for the region. It is important for policymakers to continue to work together and share best practices to ensure that all residents of the region have access to the opportunities and resources they need to thrive. Thank you for listening to our podcast on Welcome to our podcast on monetary policy with declining deficits. Today, 
we'll be discussing a fascinating paper by Rodolfo Emanuele and Juan Juan Di Vizcano, which explores the optimal monetary policy in a regime of fiscal dominance, using recent Argentine monetary policy as a case study. So, what is fiscal dominance? In simple terms, it refers to a situation where the government's fiscal policy, that is its spending and taxation decisions, dominates the central bank's monetary policy. This can happen when the government has a large budget deficit and relies on the central bank to finance it by printing money or issuing debt. In such a scenario, the central bank may find it difficult to control inflation as it is constrained by the government's fiscal decisions. The paper by Manueli and Vizcano examines the optimal monetary policy in such a regime of fiscal dominance, using a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium Dishi model. The model assumes that the government can issue bonds and the central bank can issue both bonds and money. The authors show that in a situation of full commitment, that is when the central bank can commit to a policy of positive inflation, even when the deficit is zero. The optimal policy is for the central bank to issue both bonds and money. This allows the central bank to smooth the distortion associated with the inflation tax and achieve a lower level of inflation. However, when the central bank cannot commit to a policy of positive inflation when the deficit is zero, the ability to smooth the distortion associated with the inflation tax is reduced. In such a scenario, there is a tight cap associated with the maximum amount of debt that the monetary authority can issue. The authors show that in this case, the optimal policy is for the central bank to issue only bonds and not money. The authors then apply their model to the recent monetary policy of Argentina, which has been characterized by a declining budget deficit. They find that the Argentine monetary authority has followed a policy that, to a first rough approximation, results in an inflation rate that is close to that implied by the optimal policy under weak commitment. However, the actual policy deviates from the optimal in that the inflation rate is not constant. One interesting aspect of the paper is its discussion of the institutional arrangements that give rise to fiscal dominance. The authors note that it is impossible to determine why, if issuing bonds is part of the optimal policy, the fiscal authority chooses to delegate this to the monetary authority. The first best optimal policy is one in which the fiscal authority issues bonds and the monetary authority issues only money. However, practice, this is not always feasible due to political and institutional constraints. The authors suggest that one way to mitigate the problem of fiscal dominance is to establish a fiscal rule that limits the government's ability to run large budget deficits. Overall, the paper by Manueli and Vizcano provides valuable insights into the optimal monetary policy in a regime of fiscal dominance. It highlights the importance of institutional arrangements and political constraints in shaping monetary policy decisions. The case study of Argentina also provides a useful example of how these insights can be applied in practice. Thank you for listening to our podcast on monetary policy with declining deficits. We hope you found it informative and thought-provoking.
Welcome to this episode of our podcast, where we will be discussing the fascinating topic of return to capital in a real business cycle model. This topic is of great importance to economists and policymakers alike, as it helps us understand the relationship between economic growth and asset returns. In this article, the authors investigate whether a real business cycle model is consistent with the observed asset return. They construct the return to capital from the National Income and Product Accounts, NIPA, and use it to measure the asset return. The authors make two contributions to the literature, including an equivalence for the neoclassical growth model between a stock market return and a return based on income and capital stock data. So, what exactly is a real business cycle model? In simple terms, it is a model that explains fluctuations in economic activity as the result of changes in productivity and technology. The model assumes that the economy is made up of many different markets, each of which is in equilibrium. The model also assumes that people are rational and forward-looking, meaning that they make decisions based on their expectations of future economic conditions. The authors of this article use a real business cycle model to investigate the relationship between economic growth and asset returns. They construct the return to capital from the NIPIA, which is a measure of the income generated by capital investments. They then use this measure to calculate the asset return, which is the return on investment in the stock market. One of the key contributions of this article is the equivalence between a stock market return and a return based on income and capital stock data in the neoclassical growth model. This equivalence is important because it allows us to use data on income and capital stock to estimate the stock market return, which is difficult to measure directly. The authors also investigate the volatility of the return to capital and compare it to the volatility of the SAMP 500 quarterly return. They find that the volatility of the return to capital is much higher than the volatility of the SAMP 500 quarterly return. This suggests that the real business cycle model is consistent with the observed asset return, as it predicts that the return to capital should be more volatile than the stock market return. Overall, this article provides valuable insights into the relationship between economic growth and asset returns. By using a real business cycle model and constructing the return to capital from the MIPA, the authors are able to estimate the asset return and investigate its volatility. The equivalence between a stock market return and a return based on income and capital stock data is a particularly important contribution, as it allows us to estimate the stock market return using data on income and capital stock. This is a valuable tool for economists and policymakers who are interested in understanding the relationship between economic growth and asset returns. In conclusion, the article Return to Capital in a Real Business Cycle Model provides a valuable contribution to the literature on economic growth and asset returns. By using a real business cycle model and constructing the return to capital from the NIPA, the authors are able to estimate the asset return and investigate its volatility. The equivalence between a stock market return and a return based on income and capital stock data is a particularly important contribution as it allows us to estimate the stock market return using data on income and capital stock. This is a valuable tool for economists and policymakers who are interested in understanding the relationship between economic growth and asset.